You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Give me your best impression of a turkey. Uh, no, because I can't appropriately impersonate you with your voice. <laughs> oh, my oh, Lord. Okay. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, as always, is Mr. Brent Leatherwood. Welcome. Mm, a, a bleary-eyed Brent. Yes, because you were in D.C. this week and yes. got back late because plane travel is not what it used to be. One thirty in the morning. And that's dedication. Yeah, that Your is. The president is dedicated, folks. Yes. Well, we need to get the kids to school. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. The <laughs> and, kids and, do. <laughs> and so after you, after you get up and you do that, then it's like, well, just come on into the office. But <laughs> it was a late night, but it was after a good trip to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where we had multiple meetings across our federal government with officials about the priorities that our churches care about in the SBC. And so it was it was a good trip for our entity. Good. Well, and we're going to do the format a little bit differently today because of your trip to D.C. We're going to talk about all things D.C. with content sprinkled in. There's a lot going on. But before we do that, I want to let you know a few things. Number one is that we are going to take a break next week because it is Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Enjoy the turkey and please make sure your Christmas tree is up. Oh, my word. Well, let me ask you this. Number two, what I wanted to do was, uh, can you give me your best impression of a turkey? Uh, no, because I can't <laughs> appropriately impersonate you with your voice. Oh, my oh, Lord. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 <laughs> I expected a, you to do gobble gobble. That's, that's what my papa used to call me. You're such a turkey. You're such a turkey. Yeah, so anyways. Well, I think papa had it right. And then uh, <laughs> the last thing I want to ask just at the front end is, do you have any Thanksgiving traditions? You just mentioned you decorate your tree. Yeah, Thanksgiving Day at the latest is when our tree would be up. But thankfully, you know, this year we're on the right side of the calendar. It's been up now for a couple of weeks. And so we're really thankful for that. No, a, a particular Thanksgiving. No, I really don't. don't What's your so. favorite Thanksgiving food? Of course, my wife will listen to this and she's probably like, oh, we have all kinds of right, Thanksgiving exactly. traditions. Do you have a favorite food? I mean, I really like dressing. Yeah. Dressing. Is it cornbread? Yes, cornbread dressing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably my favorite. Okay. Well, we decorate and by yes, we... Yes, and what about you? I, I should yes, be interested you. in, in yeah. yours. So let please me let me ask inter- you. Let me be more interesting than you are currently. <laughs> I'll blame it on the one thirty in the morning. Please blame it on that. <laughs> yes. You have to understand that the last you know 12 hours of my life was essentially us reenacting that movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, <laughs> which... Incidentally, is a Thanksgiving it movie. Is, yes. And so that's kind of what it was. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you're here. We, and by we, I mean me, and this year my kids will probably try to help and it will drive me crazy, but decorate for Christmas the day after Thanksgiving, not before then. Our dressing is not cornbread, it is potato bread. And so I really like that. I don't like cornbread dressing. I really wasn't raised by Southern parents. And pumpkin pie. I like homemade pumpkin pie. It has to be refrigerated though. I like it cold. I don't like it room temperature. Mm -hmm. So, and then we watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And my mom usually likes the dog show. I don't really like that. 
And then we turn on all the Christmas movies while we're decorating. Yeah, we probably do that Thanksgiving evening. Is That's probably when we have a Christmas movie on. Mm-hmm. But we've been having Christmas movies on for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm trying to start my kids because they're not quite old enough to watch movies, don't have the attention span, but I'm going to force them to watch <laughs> movies. <laughs> I've already done it with a Mickey and Minnie, some movie, which was really cute. But Marion says she will not, she doesn't want to watch The Grinch because she's scaled. Yes. The Grinch scales well. He, he is very scary. But I love The Grinch. So anyway, yes, but happy Thanksgiving next week. And then we'll be back the week after that. But we want you to enjoy time with your family and your friends and just get some downtime and eat a lot of Thanksgiving food. Yes. And we have much to be thankful for. We have and much so to don't, be thankful for. You know, have an attitude of gratitude. That's this Thanksgiving. right. Thanksgiving. That's the way I Tell my children. That's right. So let's go ahead and start with uh, our culture section and talk about your trip to D.C. So Brent, why don't you let us know what's been happening in our country? So you're right, Lindsay. Uh, This week, we had planned this several weeks ago because this was going to be the first week of the lame duck session of Congress. And we wanted to be up there because we knew that there were going to be some important conversations going on with members of Congress about what the priorities are going to be for these final, you know, about six weeks of this particular Congress. And we had been told back in September that one of the bills that was postponed for consideration was probably going to be back on the docket for the U.S. Senate, which was what is called the Respect for Marriage Act, although in reality, it's a gay marriage bill. And so we knew that was going to take place. We also knew that there was going to be an omnibus spending bill that would be considered to fund the government. And our major concern there is whether there will be pro-life protections that have had a long bipartisan tradition of being part of those spending bills. And then the other thing was some sort of permanent and secure solution for immigrants. There's a number of different immigrant populations that could be really helped if the Senate and Congress were to really focus their attention and get these things uh, across the finish line. So we want to be a part of those conversations. Each of those are very important to our convention of churches. As a matter of fact, over the last few weeks in talking with pastors and visiting with state conventions around the country, several of these have come up and folks just kind of wondering what the latest update is. Well, this week we began to see some action. And I would submit, essentially, the the U.S. Senate is misprioritizing things. And and that was really the message as I was sitting and and talking with members of Congress, is that, look, in a lame duck session, any lame duck session, time is of the essence. You only have a few hours each day to really consider bills and work through them and pass them. And so let's focus on things that will actually help people and not play on divisions that might be out there. And unfortunately, I would submit that the Senate took that path because the first thing right out of the gate that they considered was this misnamed Respect for Marriage Act. It's not helpful. And uh, what it does is it will essentially codify the Obergefell ruling and do so in a way that leaves open religious liberty and conscience protections to be challenged in courts. And that's just, that's not where we need to go. This bill is completely unnecessary. And because it opens potentially those new horizons, it's actually really harmful. 
And so we wanted to deliver that message. And effectively, what we were saying is instead of going down this path, particularly in the U.S. Senate, why don't instead our elected officials focus their time and energy on getting a spending package together that includes conscience protections, uh, particularly around the issue of life? So most often when we talk about that, we talk about the Hyde Amendment, but there's a whole series of pro-life riders that traditionally have been included in these spending bills. And so we said, instead of focusing on this other legislation, come back to the table and, and work on funding our government and making sure that it is done so in a way that does not violate the consciences of millions of taxpayers who do not want to pay for abortion. Do that. Or... You could also work on an immigration solution. The SBC has been adamant over the years that we have a broken immigration system. We need secure borders and we need to find a pathway for folks who are here to be able to earn their way to some sort of permanent status. And most particular, uh, I, I think most urgent, I would say, where attention is needed is with a group of folks who are neighbors known as the Dreamers. These are people who are American. They were brought here as children. They had no ability, no say in the decision that their parents made to come here. But all they've ever known is the American context. They are Americans. But because of this quirk in the system, they've not been allowed to go through a stable system where they can get permanent status and eventually citizenship. And instead, their lives are in constant limbo. And to me, it's just, it befuddles me that we have not been able to legislate a path for these folks and get a permanent solution for them in our laws. And so that was essentially our message to members of Congress. Instead of focusing on this legislation that is going to play on division, and that is completely unnecessary. And in fact, with passing it, may open harmful avenues and will only create further division. Instead of doing that, why not focus on some solutions that will really help people? And so that was effectively our message. And we had some good meetings. We had some encouraging conversations. We did have some ones that were more challenging and more frustrating, but that's okay. We want to continue to have that kind of dialogue with our nation's leaders so that we can continue speaking to their consciences. So that's, that's what we've been doing here over the last few days. And, you know, special shout out to our teammate, Hannah Daniel, up in Washington, D.C., who is just kind of coordinating all of our efforts uh, there right now. And, and she's doing a, a tremendous job. And she will get a well-deserved break next week for Thanksgiving break. First up, I want to mention a few things about what you brought up. So as a listener, if you're wondering what lame duck is, what that means, what omnibus is, and want to keep track of the things that we are watching for and advocating for in this lame duck session, Hannah, who we just gave a shout out to, has put together a piece about our advocacy priorities in the lame duck session. And she describes what lame duck session is and she talks about our advocacy for life, religious liberty, marriage, and human dignity. In addition, you mentioned the Respect for Marriage Act, which is a misnomer. It's not respecting marriage. Uh, it's not revering 
this fundamental building block of our society. If you don't have marriage between a man and a woman as God has designed, civilization (laughs) ceases to exist because you can't procreate and have children. Marriage's design demonstrates God's wisdom and His goodness. And we want to continue to proclaim that lovingly, boldly, clearly, and we want to continue to uh, stand for that. And so Hannah has also provided us with an explainer titled, Why the ERLC Still Opposes the Respect for Marriage Act. And she discusses the problems with it. She discusses the foundation for why we hold to marriage as between one man and one woman for life. And so I think this will be clear for you. This will give you a place where you can just have all the information that you need instead of needing to go search it on the interwebs. I wanted to ask you, Brent, you mentioned having meetings. Just briefly describe to us some of the groups that you met with and then how those meetings work. What does it look like when when the ERLC goes into meetings with some of our legislators? Right. So the meetings that we had, so we had uh, official meetings with members of Congress and folks who serve in the White House and the broader Biden administration. Then we also had some coalition meetings. And then uh, Hannah was also orchestrating, I mean, she's kind of jack of all trades up there right now. She was orchestrating office visits with some of our coalition partners. And so the first part was just kind of a strategy session with some of our coalition partners, some of our evangelical uh, coalition partners, uh, to talk about specifically some of these immigration reforms that may be acted upon, but maybe not. The reality is, though, is expectations are lowered pretty drastically that if, if action is not taken in the Lane Duck session, they're probably going to see the chances of some sort of action in the next Congress dwindle pretty dramatically. But then the official meetings were talking with, for example, what one U.S. senator who is very much aligned with all of us on our issues. And in fact, he's a Southern Baptist and just was giving some really good feedback about some of the efforts that are taking place to try and stall the gay marriage legislation, as well as just providing a pretty realistic assessment of maybe some of the routes for the immigration reform. And Hannah was organizing some visits with, for example, uh, Leader McConnell's office. And so that was just a very, very busy, busy time there on, on the Hill. And I mean, the way that these come together is obviously when you have bills that are likely to be acted upon if you can get meetings, face-to-face meetings with members of Congress, uh, I mean, that's just fantastic. Sometimes it's, it's with their staffs. I mean, their bosses obviously have votes or they have to be somewhere. But if you're meeting with their staffs too and communicating your perspective, they think that's invaluable. I, I had several who really appreciated the RLC's analysis of the forthcoming omnibus bill, the spending package, and where our concerns were. There's a lot of moving parts to such a big piece of legislation where we indicated that things such as the spending limits were being raised or maybe some other items within the legislation were being used to kind of advance a bit of a SOGI agenda that we think is is not appropriate uh, for the government to pursue. And so we, we got a lot of affirmation about our work there. I mean, look, that's exactly why we're needed. Uh, we, I've said this before, our reputation on the Hill is we are not partisans. We don't come in with, you know, big pack checks and we're not lobbyists, but instead we are coming from our convention of churches. 
to bring a word about what is morally correct and what is helpful in these deliberations. And because of that, because we are seen as an honest voice about these bills and these proposals that are being debated, we can have conversations with Republicans and Democrats. And we can have conversations about things with which we disagree. But they know, again, that we're, we're an honest broker here. And I think that's why we are able to make a difference where it's possible. So, yeah. While you were in D.C., the election results had been up in the air. We finally figured out who was going to control the Senate, the Democrats. And then uh, it was up in the air about who was going to control the House. So talk a little bit about those results that came out when you were in D.C. Right. So we, we figured this would happen as some of these final congressional races, the, the votes are tallied or, you know, election analysts have enough percentage of the vote to be able to call races. And so those were happening over the weekend. But then finally, when we were in Washington, NBC News actually was the first outlet to say it's official Republicans have won control of the House. And so we'll link to the story here, but NBC News reported this, that Republicans have won control of the House. Uh, NBC News projected Wednesday, handing President Joe Biden a divided Congress after Democrats kept control of the Senate in last week's midterm elections. Republicans finally cemented their takeover a week after polls closed on Election Day, fueled by Democrats' surprising strength around the country. Republicans had hopes of sweeping into power with dozens of wins, but instead, they only have a thin majority, complicating their ability to function in the House chamber. The results came down to a handful of tight races. It was a district in Los Angeles County, California, that finally put Republicans over the edge. Even with a small majority, Republicans in Congress will still have a powerful check on Biden, who can expect a louder microphone for his critics and a rush of congressional investigations into his administration and his family, potentially culminating in a push by the most conservative members in the House to impeach him. But he can count on allies in the Democratic Senate to confirm his judicial and administration appointments, even if his legislative agenda is effectively dead in the water, thanks to the GOP House. So it, it's really that last line from that NBC News report that I think is kind of telling us what is ahead. One word, gridlock. There probably will be very few bigger items that move. And I think for some people, that's okay. Count me, my political philosophy, I'm actually okay with that. I would submit to listeners that that's actually what our founders had in mind when they designed our government. Yes, they wanted it to work on the things that are necessary for the government to operate. But at the same time, they didn't want big moves, big sweeping moves. And over the last multiple cycles, congressional and presidential cycles, each side that's won has kind of overread the results as to say, oh, I've got this sweeping mandate and we're going to push through the agenda that we prefer. And actually, that's, I would say, that's kind of what the founders were, were wanting to prevent. And instead, they wanted to make sure that there were multiple times and multiple checkpoints where ambition would counter ambition. And if there were going to be partisans that were in Congress, that they would counteract one another. And that would just mean things happen on a much slower scale. So all that to say, I'll sum it up like this. Gridlock is actually a bit of a feature, not a bug of our constitutional system. I do understand there are folks out there that are 
frustrated by that. And believe me, I'm, I'm sympathetic about that. But at the same time, that's our system was in many ways designed like this. Now, there will be some constitutional people who, constitutional scholars who will listen to this and say, well, but the system that we have is not the system actually that the founding fathers gave. I, yes, I totally agree with that too. There's been some structural changes. But needless to say, this, uh, this is an important development. And obviously what it said in there about uh, President Biden's agenda, it's going to be tested at this point. I think the onus is actually on him if he does want to accomplish some additional things in his agenda and his vision for how he wants to lead our nation. He's going to have to rely on some of his old instincts as a U.S. senator and lean into his ability to accomplish things in a bipartisan manner. And, you know, we'll see if he uh, still has those capabilities, but that's what is ahead for us. So with Republicans officially taking control of the House in the next Congress, that means Democrats will be in the minority. And a lot of attention has focused on the future of Nancy Pelosi and whether she will try to retain her leadership position in the minority or whether maybe this will be her last days in Congress. We just don't know. But we got an important clue with that late Wednesday night. And this comes to us, uh, this next story comes to us from Politico about this. On Wednesday night, just before 11 p.m., Nancy Pelosi's longtime spokesperson, Drew Hamill, announced on Twitter that on Thursday, the speaker will finally announce her plans for the future, putting an end to mounting speculation about whether she'll retire, stay on as the top House Democrat, or step down from leadership, but continue to serve in Congress. His message on Twitter came just a few hours after the House was called in favor of Republicans, sending the rumor mill already churning over Pelosi's future into warp drive. Wednesday night, speculation ran rampant inside Pelosi's own leadership circle about what she'll do, and House Democrats' patience is wearing thin. Some senior members predict Pelosi will run again despite her 2018 promise to limit herself to four years as the lead House Democrat, but at least four members and aides on her leadership team told us late Wednesday night that they were hearing the opposite from people close to Pelosi, that she'll announce that she will step aside as soon as this morning. And what's really interesting is that apparently as she wrapped up the day, Speaker Pelosi took two versions of her planned floor speech home on Wednesday night, presumably one announcing her exit and the other her plans to stay. That's what Politico uh, reports. And so that's it makes you wonder whichever one she decides, what's in the other one? And I wonder if historians will be able to capture that draft at all. So this, I mean, look, agree with her or not, and we certainly have many disagreements uh, over the years with Nancy Pelosi. She's been a consequential figure in the history of the U.S. House of Representatives and in the broader American political landscape. So for her to potentially step aside and allow the next generation of Democratic leaders to emerge in the House, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. What I wonder is, will some of the Republican members who are veterans of Congress, them taking the majority, will they have kind of any sort of advantages? Because these newer members on the Democratic side may not quite have uh, as much seasoning as Pelosi and Leader Hoyer and Representative Clyburn from, from South Carolina. So that's just interesting dynamics going on in the House. Well, and I just Googled it 
I knew she was older, but she's 82 years old. Yeah. You have got to be tired of the life that politics brings at 82. And I wonder if, as well, what has just recently happened with her husband might play into some of that decision as well. Yeah, and that's been a part of the reporting. And and she's admitted that that heinous attack on her husband in his home that spurred just baseless conspiracy theories that were just totally inappropriate. She admitted that that certainly is a factor weighing in her decision about moving forward. So it's only natural that it would. But no, you're right. I mean, look, if you think about it, over the last couple of years, last several years, actually, on both Democratic side and on the Republican side, our nation's politics has been ruled by octogenarians and septuagenarians, 70 and 80 year olds. That's interesting how that age group came into prominence and were influencing our politics at the same time. So, Well, in our culture who that favors the young, we often think that we get more done in our younger years. But when in reality, some of your most fruitful years are your older years. You've got these 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds, our elders, who are helping lead our country. Now, we may not agree with many of them, but all that to say, the Bible speaks in terms of honor when it comes to age and getting older. And there is a lot that those who are older have to offer because as Jen Wilkin was tweeting the other day, or she's writing about it, we have increasing value as we get older. We're not diminished in our value, mm. but God bestows honor on those who are right. our elders. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, couldn't have said it any better. So uh, let me just say this as kind of an end cap to my time in Washington. Also visited with members of the administration, went to the White House, went to the State Department. And in particular, with the State Department, uh, we continued to raise the plight of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, China, the Uyghur genocide that is occurring there at the hands of the Chinese government. We implored and encouraged the administration to continue drawing international attention to that atrocity that is ongoing, that should be viewed as entirely unacceptable. And was saying, we want to do everything we can at the RLC, operating, you know, from our churches to continue calling attention to that and ask them to do more, take more specific steps. And then at the White House, we talked through multiple things, including just kind of reaffirming and getting the affirmation from the administration that faith plays such an important role in our society and and faith-based organizations do. There are some areas where we likely can work with them on some measures to protect churches and, and houses of worship around the country. So that'll be an initiative that we certainly would would want to speak into. And then continue to point out that there is a lot of common ground when it comes to human dignity where the ball can be moved forward. And so that was that was a good, encouraging conversation. So that's a part of, of what we do. Yeah, well, we're thankful to have you at the helm leading our efforts. We're thankful for Hannah, who has put in so much time and so much heart into leading the way in D.C. in this season. And we're glad that we're able to give our listeners, SBC pastors and church members, a window into how all of this advocacy happens. It is interesting, and it's not something that all of us get to partake in. Right. Yep. Well, we usually end 
our podcast by talking about something interesting. And I'm normally the one who brings it, but you're bringing something this week that is a little bit crazy and a sign of the times that we live in. Well, I mean, I feel like it's right up your alley. Well, it is up my alley. (laughs) Um, So I was reading the paper on the way up to Washington and I came across this story in the Wall Street Journal and I just said, I'm bringing this to you, Lindsay. And it, it talks about people who get paid to, how would you phrase it? Uh, sleep? Yeah, they get paid to sleep. I guess that is the best way to put it. So uh, from the story, and we'll link to this in the show notes, Jakey Baum has- His more, name is Jakey Baum? That Jake, J, I think that's Baum. Jake, Jakey is definitely his name, but I think it's Jakey Baum. Uh, has more than a million online followers drawn to roughly the same storyline. Every night at 10 p.m., the 28-year-old puts on pajamas, climbs into bed, and tosses and turns to an international audience watching on TikTok Live. His monthly take from the online fans, he said, averages $35,000 a month. (laughs) <laughs> That's crazy. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> so what does he do? I'm looking at this article. He has, he says, the more chaos, the better. The audience loves chaos, which is so true. The sleep torture gimmick amuses Kyle, 25-year-old TV producer. So he's not actually sleeping. He's being tortured in his sleep, in a sense, like he's being kept awake. Well, this paragraph goes on to explain about Mr. Baum. It says this, he he lives on Australia's Gold Coast, and he goes a step further than maybe some of the others that are mentioned in the story. Viewers can buy him virtual gifts that trigger sounds and lights in Mr. Baum's bedroom to try to wake him. The viewing experience has a voyeuristic video game quality with anonymous watchers paying to startle Mr. Bomb awake as if he were a game character. That is just bizarre. This actually does sound like torture. It is bizarre. It's bizarre. And the thing is, he's making all this money, but he's not going to be alive to enjoy it because you need need sleep. sleep. Yes. 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 Well, so you telling me about this reminded me of something I saw, I think it was yesterday on the Today Show. There is a viral trend, and I think it's on TikTok, uh, where people are taping their mouths shut to sleep at night because Mm, there is this idea that if you tape your mouth shut, you sleep better. So these people say that they are sleeping better because they're only breathing through your nose. However, doctors are sounding warning bells because, as we know, your mouth is a backup breathing system. So what happens if your nose gets obstructed in the night and you... Yeah. You can't That feels breathe. like it leads to bad consequences. I think so. Yeah. Uh, one doctor was saying cardiac arrest and seizures. So Ooh. why, why? And furthermore, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night because this, this one lady was describing it as like putting her lips together like this and then taping them shut. That doesn't seem comfortable to sleep that way either. No, no. We live in a weird, we live weird in a age. Weird age. A weird it, age. Yes. And I get being desperate for sleep and you want good sleep, but I'm just thinking that's not the way to do it. It could take you to your eternal sleep. It could take you to your eternal <laughs> sleep. I, I, just, I don't, I feel like people haven't thought this through uh, very well. They haven't. So. And some of these are yeah. mom, like one lady who was interviewed was a mom of young children. Oh, just, it, just is, it just is crazy. So please, please don't do this. If there's anything that you would like to take away from this, it's please do not tape your mouth shut to go to sleep at night. It is just not worth whatever consequences you may face. Yeah. 